0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, what happens when we make a memory? Is it a literal recording of past events, or is it something a bit more flexible?
1: When we remember things, we're actually, in some sense, constructing or reconstructing an experience. It feels like remembering, but it's a construction. And We sometimes take bits and pieces of experience, things that we were exposed to at different times and places, bring that together to feed and fuel this construction.
0: And later, how nostalgic memories can help us cope in difficult times, like a pandemic. If
2: we're feeling bad, you know, there's a whole range of reasons why people are feeling down right now, for lack of a better term. And so memory is actually a free and internal resource that we all have to repair our mood.
0: The malleability of memory. That's coming up on KCRW's Life Examined. For much of the 20th century, the consensus was that our memories are fixed and stored in the brain like a tape recording of past events. But decades of research by Elizabeth Loftus and others have shown that memories are a living thing and subject to change. Loftus is a professor of psychology and law at UC Irvine. She argues that memory, quote, expands, shrinks, and expands again, an amoeba-like creature. Loftus is famous for her study on planting false memories, and firmly maintains that our memories can be altered by suggestion. This finding has forced her to take the stands, literally. She's testified in hundreds of cases, often for people wrongly accused, as an expert witness to talk about the malleable nature of memory. Most recently, she found herself in a dilemma. Should she ignore her decades of research or serve as an expert witness on behalf of disgraced movie producer Harvey Weinstein? Joining me now to talk about all of this is Professor Elizabeth Loftus. Welcome to Life Examined.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Well... I want to go back in time here and talk about some of the the first experiences you have being interested in this question of memory, how we remember things, why we remember things the way that we do. what What sparked your interest in this subject?
1: I got interested in memory when I was in graduate school. Uh, I had um, I went to graduate school at Stanford in psychology. And I took a course from a professor while I was there who, who was interested in memory and asked me if I wanted to you know, join and help him with his project. It, it was a, a kind of memory that um, is called semantic memory, um, memory for words and concepts and basically our knowledge of the world. And I worked on those experiments during my years in graduate school. But after I finished my PhD, Uh, I thought I really wanted to do work that had more obvious practical applicability. Mm. And um, so with this background in memory and kind of an interest in legal matters, the memory of eyewitnesses to crimes and accidents was a kind of natural place to go. And Mm. that's what I started to study. Yeah.
0: You've given a talk on a really fascinating legal case, um, and it involves someone called Steve Titus. Can you talk about what happened to him and why it really caught your attention?
1: The reason that the Titus case was so significant to me, I think, is probably because of its sad ending. Uh, So what happened with Steve Titus, he was a a restaurant manager. He was engaged to be married. He... He was gonna marry Gretchen, the love of his life. And one day he gets pulled over and he gets accused and, uh, and identified by a rape victim who essentially said he was the one who raped her. Uh, there were a lot of issues having to do with this identification, but this, this victim, a genuine victim was so confident when she took the stand that the jury uh, convicted Steve Titus and, and uh, he just screamed that he was innocent, his fiance sobbing in the courtroom, uh, and he's, he's hauled off to jail. What ultimately happened is that she had identified the wrong person. Mm-hmm. She identified the wrong person and it was only because of a journalist who took an interest in Titus's case and, and found the real perpetrator, somebody who had committed a whole bunch of, of rapes in that area uh, that Titus was finally set free. So, so that might've been the end of it, uh, but he had lost his job, he lost his fiance, his life was a wreck. And so he decided to sue uh, the people he felt were responsible for this wrongful uh, conviction and just days before he was going to go have his day in court with this civil lawsuit he died of a stress-related heart attack he Mm -hmm. was only 35 years old wow so that it tells you something about the pain and the stress and and the agony uh, that befalls someone who is falsely accused
0: and can you walk us through i think what what this case illustrates when it comes to memory
1: One of the things that the Titus case illustrates, um, when when this uh, rape victim first was shown the photos and asked to try to make an identification, she was not all that certain. She pointed to the photo of Titus. She said, well, this one's the closest. But her expression certainly did not seem very confident. By the time she got to trial, she was absolutely positive that's the guy. So something happened in between to bolster her level of confidence and therefore make her a more persuasive witness when it came to, test, to testifying uh, at the jury trial, at the criminal trial. And um, she, and this testimony was responsible for this conviction, which ended up being a wrongful conviction. So, you know, one of the lessons here is there were a lot of factors that, um, are known to be kind of associated with a mistaken identification. You also see an example of the inflation of confidence level that sometimes happens in cases when witnesses are supplied with other information. It would be something like, a, you know, a police officer saying, well, that's the guy we think it is, or in some way rewarding her for a positive identification. And that seems to be. Uh, certainly what contributed in this particular case. Mm.
0: Yeah, so in this case, y- you have this victim who goes from um, some level of uncertainty to suddenly this steadfast belief, this is the person, I, I now remember it clearly, w- which speaks to something that you've, you've studied uh, so closely now for decades, which is the malleability Of memory, the idea that the memories we have are subject to change depending on certain factors uh, in the world around us. So, so can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure.
1: In 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 many experiments that uh, I have done, my research group, I and my collaborators, we will do studies where, for example, we present people with a simulated crime or a simulated accident, and later on we expose them to some misinformation about that event. So so maybe they saw the car go through a yield sign before the accident, but we suggest to them that it was a stop sign. And when we do that, many people will succumb to the suggestion and claim that misinformation as their own memory. They'll say, I saw a stop sign. Hmm. Um, and. So we, we and others, I mean, there are now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies on what's called the misinformation effect. When people get misinformation about an event that they themselves have experienced, it can contaminate, distort, transform uh, their memory.
0: How did this change the previous paradigm? of working with, with memory? You know, this this notion that, that memory was more akin to a hard drive on a computer. You, you would just go back into the memory and it would remain the same as it always was.
1: Well, there was a, uh, a widespread belief. It still exists today. It's kind of a mistaken belief that memory works like a recording device. Mm. You, you just record the event and then you play it back later. But it in fact this work on the malleable nature of memory shows that that model is is not right that we when we remember things we're actually in some sense constructing or reconstructing an experience it it feels like remembering but it's a construction and we we sometimes take bits and pieces of experience things that we were exposed to at different times and places bring that together to uh, f- feed and fuel this construction.
0: Why do you think that happens? Why, why do our brains work in that way, which is almost you know more creative than it is a matter of fact?
1: I've been asked that question a lot. Um, you, know, you know, why would whatever your theory is? Why would God? Why would Darwin? Why would we have been created with a memory system that is prone to uh, accepting? details that occur at some other time and scientists who who work in this area have come up with a a couple of speculations about why. One of them is this flexible memory system means that when spontaneous errors creep into memory, which they do, and we learn about it, we can update our memories with accurate information and that would be a very useful feature. Mm. Um, Another speculation is that some memory distortions actually might be in a way beneficial for the person i don't know if you're aware but there's evidence that we remember that our grades were better than they really were in school or that we voted in elections that we didn't vote in or or we gave more to charity than we really did or Mm. we had kids that walked and talked at an earlier age than they really did these are prestige enhancing memory distortions that afflict lots and lots of people and it may be that they allow us to feel a little better about ourselves maybe little a little happier life interestingly depressed people don't do that as much
0: they tend to to not uh kind of inflate their sense of self or their past i guess
1: well less so than less so than non non non-depressed people Mm. And and then there's one more thought that I think is quite clever. Um, The same memory structures, brain structures, that we use to recall the past are also involved when we anticipate a future. Anticipating a future and anticipating alternate futures that could happen and planning for what you might do given that which of these alternate futures actually materializes you need a flexible system to be able to have that work efficiently and perhaps this flexible brain system uh, is what allows that very beneficial activity to be able to occur as well as it does so i'm just throwing out a few Mm. speculations that scientists have have tossed out about why we would have been created with a memory system that works like
0: this. Yeah, and I love that you use the, the term flexible memory here. That seems like a perfect one. And and it reminds me of one of your famous studies in which you were actually able to implant a memory in people's minds. Um, in this case, uh, you were able to to convince people that when they were young as children, they were actually lost in a mall at one point. Can you say more about that?
1: These were adults. And we what we did with these adults is we, planted a completely false childhood memory. Um, We planted a childhood memory that when you were about five or six years old, you were lost in a shopping mall, you were frightened, you were crying, you were ultimately rescued by an elderly person and reunited with the family. And we did this by talking to, let's say the mother of our research subject, And we would gather from the mother some true things, true experiences that really did happen to the subject when the subject was say five years old. And then with the mother, we would create and make up a completely false scenario about being lost at a particular time um, in a shopping mall where the family might've shopped and being rescued and so on. We present these four experiences to our subject as if they're all true and, interview, several interviews with the subject. And what we found after about three suggestive interviews, about a quarter of these ordinary men and women, healthy, intact men and women, fell for the suggestion and began to remember all or part of this made up experience. And that was one of the earliest studies of what's now called the planting of rich false memories. But there have now been lots and lots of other studies. You know, another one just published recently that planted false memories that you had an accident as a child or an injury as a child, things that would have been pretty upsetting if they had actually happened to the subject.
0: I wonder for you what 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 you drew from this in, in the research. Where, where did this take you in terms of your understanding of, of memory?
1: It, it a big leap from from the earlier studies the in the earlier studies um where we showed you could change memory for the details of an event that somebody actually experienced you could make them believe that the car went through a stop sign instead of a yield sign or the bad guy uh, you know perpetrator had curly hair instead of straight hair Um, you know that was fairly easy to do but what we were seeing with this newer batch of studies is that you could go further and you could plant an entirely false memory into the mind of someone. And it, 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 it taught us a great deal more about the power of suggestion and suggestive influences to do just that.
0: You know, and it's interesting, you know, my, my mind goes to how this could be used in all types of coercive ways, uh, in ways in which media or propaganda or governments could, could influence people, could create fictional events from the past. And as much as that sounds like science fiction, this stuff can really happen and it can have a profound influence on people, no?
1: Well, you're absolutely right. People could use these kinds of techniques for nefarious reasons, but you you, you might also be able to use them to, uh, to help people, mm-hmm. to help people live a, a happier or healthier life. Um, so we did a bunch of studies, for example, where we planted a false memory that you got sick eating a particular food, maybe like a fattening food, like strawberry ice cream, you got sick as a child. And once we plant that false belief or false memory People aren't as interested in eating the offending food. Um, we could plant a, a warm, fuzzy memory about a healthy food like asparagus, and hmm. people want to eat more asparagus. So with these studies, you can see you can you can influence people's nutritional selection. Maybe you could make a dent in the obesity problem in our society. Right. And um, that might be helpful for people.
0: It's interesting. I mean, I, I agree with you, and yet part of me is saying, "Ah, th- these are fabrications. These are these are these are falsities." There seems to be like a dangerous line here with all of this.
1: Well, I wouldn't even want to speculate how many falsities people are running around this planet w- with. Mm. All, how many fictions are sprinkled into that memory system <laughs> along with the facts? Right. Um, but just as other researchers have 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 determined that. The ordinary person tells a whole lot of lies each and every day. Um, if we had a good way of counting, I think we would we would be able to determine also that people have a whole lot of falsehoods uh, mixed in with those truths in memory.
0: Mm. There's a really interesting personal story that you tell, and, and it's one that, that I, I know touches on a, on a difficult part of your past, but it's it, it involves your mother when you were a child, and it's, it's a way that you uh, were able to access this malleable memory. C- could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Oh, sure, because that was that was quite an experience I had. You know, I had been studying memory distortion for quite a while, I was just getting interested in studying this whole question of rich, false memories. When I had this experience, I, I went to a family uh, birthday party. I, my uncle turned 90 years old and the family gathered. And during, during this family gathering, uh, one of my relatives said, reminded me of a tragedy in my past when, when my mother had drowned in a swimming pool. And this relative said, "You know, you were the one who found your mother's body, and, and that must have been you know extra difficult for you." I said, "No, I didn't find her body. her, right. her aunt, my my aunt, her sister found the body. It wasn't me, and, but this relative was so positive, so confident, so insistent that I went home from this party, starting to think, maybe I did. I started to visualize. I, I could picture my mother lying face down in in the swimming pool. And I started to make sense of other things I did remember in light of this new information. And then less than a week later, the relative called me and said, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It, it wasn't you who found your mother. It was her sister, your aunt. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I just, was a subject in in one of my own experiments. I was on my way and and almost fully there developing a a false memory based on this powerful suggestion that I got from my relative. And it it taught me what it might feel like for the subjects that I study and and the people out there in the real world whose cases that I have worked on where rich false memories have been planted.
0: This might seem kind of like a, a large philosophical idea to throw in here, but, but it makes me really think about what is reality and, and what is not if our brains are working in this kind of creative, flexible way. How do we tell someone uh, that experienced one thing in the past, even if it's not objectively true, that, that it was false, you know? I mean, it, it just, to me, it raises all these really big, interesting questions
1: it does it raises so many questions, but one 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 response to your your thought here that that comes to mind is this work and 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 many decades of work and and studying memory distortion, and it really, I think, has made me a more tolerant of the memory mistakes that my friends or family members, or even I might make hmm. i don't immediately assume that somebody's deliberately lying uh, they could have a false memory and that would just be a natural thing to happen given the kind of memory system we have yet i i also learned uh, particularly in conjunction with um mentee many, many interviews that were done in connection with a profile that was recently published in the New Yorker magazine right. about about my work and me, and some of the people that the author interviewed had memories that were in direct contradiction to mine. So so I remembered that my mother drowned in a swimming pool, uh, but a, a cousin of mine remembered that it was a, a creek or a pond, and I just even for a detail like that I. I just wanted to stick to my memory that it was a pool and I didn't like that. It was challenged. Mm. And when the author of the New Yorker article found a newspaper clipping from, you know, back in the fifties, when my mother drowned, that reported that she had drowned in a swimming pool, I, I, I felt a little vindicated. So it's interesting how we, we, we don't like to have our memory challenged, but, in, in the end, I, I certainly don't think that my cousin, you know, did anything deliberate. She she had a memory distortion, like many other people and like I sometimes do. Mm.
0: Well, I want to try and bring this conversation now to something that's that's been happening. Well, it's been happening for a long time. But, but the Me Too movement, of course, has brought this right into the forefront of our consciousness. And this is examples where you'll hear of someone reports a sexual encounter as consensual, but the other partner involved in that will say, no, it wasn't, it was not consensual. And you have these major disputes about this. I mean, we could talk about a lot of cases, but we could think of now uh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford and how they testified before the nation disputing what happened on a certain night. For you, how, how do you make sense of these cases? And I know that you've been drawn into a number of them.
1: Well, they're all uh, different. I think we need to keep in in mind that certainly people can um, have a, an experience, not think about it for a long time and be reminded of it. They can have an experience that's that's awful, not think about it for a long time and be reminded of it. You just have to go to a high school reunion. You can experience that for yourself. Um, but what sometimes happens in the cases that that make their way into litigation because they're the contested cases they're the most Mm -hmm. difficult ones is that sometimes people are exposed to some new information that can uh contaminate or 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 distort their memory and make them remember an event as as more awful more inappropriate more aggressive more hostile more bad uh, than it actually was that sometimes happens too
0: how does any of this then then help us understand uh, these cases with with a more sense of objective reality if that's a word we can even use here I mean what how how do we do the the I said this I remember this you remember that Wh- where does this kind of take us in terms of litigating these cases
1: I, I, I think what you what, what you need to realize and and I think this is the message that I been trying to communicate, and other uh, memory scientists as, as well, is that just because somebody tells you something, uh, and they say it with a lot of confidence, they say it with a lot of detail, they say it with a lot of emotion, it doesn't mean that it actually happened. False memories, distorted memories, can have those same characteristics. So you do need independent corroboration to know whether, whether you, what you're dealing with is on a, a, a authentic memory or, or is a product of some other process. Mm. And that corroboration, you know, might take the form of, of photographs or videos that are sometimes uh, available, you know, assuming they're, they're good, clean and not doctored uh, photos or deep fake videos, uh, that can be a form of corroborations sometimes you you find out that people made a recording of some point or told a person at the time that might be considered a, a, a bit of corroboration uh, so you, you know you need to look at what what's going on in the particular case and, and what information you can you can discover
0: mm. I'm sure, though, some people who who might be listening might might interpret this as we we should not always believe those that have been subject to sexual assaults. How would you respond to that?
1: I I think that uncritical acceptance of every memory claim, no matter how dubious, is harmful to our society. Mm. It, it, It trivializes genuine cases It certainly harms the innocently accused and their extended families, who suffer greatly. And what we all need to do is to be able to better discriminate an authentic recollection from one that has been distorted by some other process. We don't. We don't. You know, there are a lot of people in this society who believe they were abducted by aliens, and and they have very specific memories. they were taken up on spaceships, sexually experimented upon, returned to their beds on earth. They've been studied by a Harvard psychology professor extensively. They're very interesting people and they're often high-functioning, educated people. We do have to have some skepticism about memories. I mean, I mean they are sort of proof that uh, people can come to remember things that most people would think are false and and to feel very emotional and detailed and confident mm-hmm. about those probably false memories
0: yeah well, you got you know so so drawn into this when you received, and this was also reported in the New Yorker you know when you received a call from Harvey Weinstein asking if you would come on the stand and talk about uh, the way that you understand memory to work and. And a lot of people criticized you for even showing up at what might be a symbol of his defense, which I, I know you would dispute what I just said there, but that's how it was interpreted. I, I would love for you just to talk about that experience, because you've got a tremendous amount of backlash from women, from people in your department. Can you say more about that?
1: I, originally, I got contacted by an attorney in Los Angeles who was representing Harvey Weinstein, very early on, uh, soon after he was accused. And uh, I had worked with this attorney before. She was absolutely a fantastic, smart, interesting attorney to work with. And sure, I I will consult with you on this case. Um, Things didn't develop in California, but jump ahead a few years, and now they're they're gearing up in New York. Uh, By that time, I had read a lot of the media coverage about Weinstein, and when the New York people wanted me to come and testify, I was somewhat hesitant because of all the bad publicity. Mm. I even, I recommended another expert. They liked the other expert. They hired the other expert, uh, excellent expert. But in the end, Harvey wanted me to be a part of this uh, case as well. And I had to ask myself, How would I feel if I backed out of this? It would mean that I had been seduced by the media coverage. We can't let the media decide who's guilty and who isn't. And I would be backing out because I knew I would be getting into a heck of a lot of trouble. And it might hurt my ability to help other people in the future. And I was going to feel like a coward if I backed out for those selfish reasons. Because we do have a system where, you know, everyone deserves a defense and even unpopular people uh, deserve a defense within our system. And so I went forward and provided uh, some expert testimony about the workings of memory. um, Didn't mention any specific people in the case, testified maybe for a couple of hours uh, in New York. And uh, when I came back from that experience, uh, a lot of bad stuff happened um a big lecture i was supposed to give at NYU all the arrangements had been made a big prestigious le- lecture airline tickets already bought they canceled um a a colleague in 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 the law school at my university screams at me at the sandwich table saying I, you know i'm done with you how could you but uh at the same time um You know, other people had very different reactions that were more in line with, I think, the the right philosophy of our legal system. And it's there to protect all of us.
0: Mm. And so I guess what I'm hearing is that you might also be skeptical of things like cancel culture or uh, situations in which popular opinion can shift really quickly without, let's say, a full legal investigation or more facts, something like that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think we're, we would be better off if, if um, people in general and jurors in particular um, you know, have accurate knowledge about the workings of memory. They can then take that accurate knowledge and decide whether in one particular case they're going to uh, accept the memory report or maybe not. And in, in, in the Weinstein case, of course, the jurors did convict him of some of the things he was charged with and acquitted him on others. Uh, So uh, those jurors were willing to make uh, that kind of distinction.
0: Well, I'd love if you could just talk a little bit more about the legal system and the jurors and and how they need to rely on witness testimony that that could be flawed.
1: One thing we know about about jurors is they're regular people. Mm. And um, regular people have beliefs about the workings of memory that are sometimes contradicted by the scientific evidence. So so for example, um, we know that there's a cross-race identification problem in our society. People have more trouble identifying strangers of a different race than their own race. Mm. And this may be one reason why people of color are sometimes getting misidentified and wrongfully convicted, uh, something that I'm kind of passionate about. And I think if jurors are aware of the cross-race effect, um, then they can take a look at the, the facts of a particular case and, and maybe make a better decision uh, about whether this is an accurate identification or a possibly a faulty one. And, and that's our hope as, as memory scientists, uh, that we can provide information that doesn't necessarily have to be through expert testimony. It might be through jury instructions or just educating the public um, through various media channels about how memory does actually work so that better decisions are made and fewer wrongful convictions happen.
0: Do you ever work with neuroscientists or or do you feel that that breakthroughs in neuroscience could eventually help help us understand some of this a little bit better?
1: I have collaborated with scientists who are experts in neuroimaging and um, we have subjected people with true memories and false memories to functional magnetic resonance imaging, looked at Mm. the neural signals when people are recounting a true memory versus a false memory. And the overwhelming impression from that work is the similarity of those neural signals. We we are a long, long way away from doing what the legal system needs or would like, which is to take, you know, one individual memory and and make a decision. Is this an accurate one or an inaccurate one? Mm. Um, We're not anywhere close to being able to use uh, imaging to, reliably make that distinction for us
0: amazing as of now what the brain shows us is that um an authentic and a false memory are more or less the same thing
1: well you you might find some tiny statistical differences between a group of real ones and a group of false ones but not enough to be able to reliably classify one memory that i hold up and say tell me about this memory true or false can't do it Hmm.
0: Well, I, I wonder, after all these decades of, of research and and understanding all the things we've been talking about today, what, what, what would you want to leave us with in terms of where this research has taken you and, and your understanding of, of who we are as human beings?
1: I'd leave people with the one take-home message that I think I've clung to for at least the last decade, which is that just because somebody tells you something... And they describe it in a whole lot of detail. They express confidence when they they tell you the story. Maybe they even cry when they tell you. It doesn't mean that it actually happened. It doesn't mean it actually happened that way. That that false or distorted memories can have those same characteristics. Um, And so you do need to kind of step back and resist the temptation to fully embrace and accept uncritically a story just because it has these features that impress us. Mm. And, and to ask the further questions, I wanna know more. I wanna know more about how this, how this experience happened and what kinds of things happened to the person after the experience was over.
0: Elizabeth Loftus is a professor of law and psychology at the University of California, Irvine. It's been a fascinating conversation today. Love talking about your work. Thank you for the time.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: Still to come, does misremembering help us cope? Does nostalgia actually serve a psychological purpose? We'll take a closer look. And as always, if you missed any of our shows, head on over to Apple Podcasts for the full library. There you can find last week's episode on listening, why we're so bad at it, and how to get a little bit better. You're listening to Life Examines on KCRW. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car. Designed to be recycled... This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car
2: into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW
0: Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Elizabeth Loftus, professor of law and philosophy, say that what we think we remember may not necessarily be true. But can misremembering be a way to make ourselves feel better? Can it give us a rosier perspective on our lives? The most common example of this is nostalgia, or remembering the past as better than it really was. It's something that many of us do, and psychologists have been trying to understand why the brain works this way. Charlotte Lieberman is a journalist focusing on mental health research. She wrote about the importance of nostalgia and memory as a coping mechanism in a recent New York Times article called Why We Romanticize the Past. Charlotte Lieberman, welcome to Life Examined.
2: Of course, happy to be here.
0: So in this piece, you talk about something called fading affect bias. It's a term you learned from psychology professors who look at memory. Can you tell us a little bit about what this term means and how it ties into some of these bigger questions of memory?
2: Basically, it refers to the phenomenon whereby we forget negative aspects of the past more readily than positive aspects of the past. So if that sounds like a mouthful, it's because it is. And and what it looks like is, um, I'll give an example. So let's just take um, a very basic example of going on vacation and... Let's say you had a stomach ache on a beach vacation one day. It was a very debilitating stomach ache, mm-hmm. but you were on a beautiful beach. Uh, when you recall the, you know, that vacation, and maybe you're recalling that particular day because of a photo you took, you're probably not going to remember that stomach ache, even though at the time it was probably clouding your consciousness in a pretty profound way. It might have been the main thing you were thinking about all day. And yet, you know, even a month later, even a day later, you know, it's very difficult to recall what pain feels like, um, whether it's emotional pain or, you know, in this particular example, I'm using the stomachache. Um, so, so yeah, the basic um, definition is just that negative experiences tend to fade more readily than positive ones.
0: Mm-hmm. You spoke to a whole bunch of experts about this from across across the country, and and, and they gave you some interesting ideas as to why this might be happening. What, what do they tell you?
2: I think the biggest you know throughline that I found across disciplines and across researchers is that this is basically a coping mechanism. Psychologists use this term "mood repair," right. and I heard several psychologists say that fading affect bias is a bias designed for mood repair. And mood repair is exactly what it sounds like. It's, you know, a quality of human memory that enables us to repair our moods. So what does that mean? Um, If we're feeling bad, like many of us are feeling now to some degree, whether that's because we're bored, because we lost our jobs, because our family members are sick, you know, there's a whole range of reasons why people are feeling down right now, for lack of a better term. and so memory is actually a you know, free and um, internal resource that we all have to repair our moods. Um, we probably wouldn't use that terminology. We might say make ourselves feel better. Um, and so that's exactly kind of why fading affect bias is, is there. It's an, ad- an adaptive mechanism of our, of our brains to help us you know, feel better. Uh, and, and just to zoom out a bit, I guess, I think it's important to remember that negative emotions um, are also adaptations. So they're mm. telling us that something is something's up and we we should deal with it. Um, so anxiety is a very primal example there. So if we're anxious, that's our brains telling us something is wrong. There is reason to be vigilant and afraid. And, you know, in the forest, if there's a predator, that means we you know get the hell away from the predator. But if we're just anxious in our homes and our brain is telling us, hey, something's wrong, we're going to do whatever we can in that moment to feel better, whether that means binge watching Netflix or drinking too many beers or feeling nostalgic. Um, So I, I would argue that nostalgia is probably... I don't want to say it's the best option of those three. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I also binge watch a ton of Netflix, so <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't be too self righteous. But um, it is, it is doing the best we can. You know, I, that's how I think about it.
0: Yeah, and, and the idea of mood repair—it's kind of, it's kind of a, an interesting and wonderful idea in and of itself. Um, And and it makes me think of uh, something that lots of women go through, childbirth, for example, uh, no doubt an extremely painful event, um, but but is perhaps remembered a little bit differently 10 years or maybe two years down the line. So we continue to reproduce. I mean, would that be another example of what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that examples come up everywhere in all sorts of ways. And another thing that comes to mind with the pregnancy example is also you know what do we think childbirth? What do we think of childbirth in public imagination? So mm. maybe that's Instagram posts from celebrities with really aspirational captions about their childbirth, right. and maybe it's how childbirth is depicted in movies or how it's talked about in the Bible. You know, there are all of these ways that this is you know this event is portrayed uh, in media, in religion, and all of those pieces of information make their way into our consciousness and it can actually affect how we reconstruct memories in our own experiences. And so that's just one of the ways that, um, our memories can become, you know, manipulated.
0: Yeah, that all the other factors that kind of, uh, that shape the memory outside of what it felt like at the time. I think that's, that that's fascinating. Well, one, you didn't talk about it too much in the article, but but you did mention that um, traumatic memories or people suffering from severe trauma, this is an, an exception where, where oftentimes those that have been through something horrific will get stuck in the past. Did you have a chance to look at that a little bit more?
2: Not a ton, but, you know, I am as you mentioned, interested in mental health. And so, you know, there is a close relationship between um, trauma and anxiety and often actually like obsessive compulsive yeah. uh, behavior. So there there is a kind of loop that ends up happening where I think the sort of hypervigilance that is the byproduct of anxiety um, that is closely related to the trauma for obvious reasons um, has people... Kind of get stuck in a loop where they believe that rehearsing that memory might lead to different outcomes, mm-hmm. or perhaps will make them learn from it and be better prepared for it, and you know the next time it could happen. So that that there's also a kind of adaptation to you know post traumatic stress, and that in that respect, you know we don't think of it as an adaptation; we think of it as a pathology. Uh, but but that's a particular you know kind of negative memory that. Um, definitely is an exception to this rule. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, thinking again about, about how we make sense of the past and, and how oftentimes it appears rosier than, than maybe it was when we were actually experiencing it, um, there's been a lot of new research in the psychology world into something called self-distancing. You, you write about this as well in the piece. What is self-distancing and what do we need to know about it?
2: Yeah, so self-distancing refers to generally, you know, getting distance from oneself. And there are lots of different ways that we can do this. Uh, We can think of, who am I going to be in five years? That's a question that inspires self-distancing. Uh, We can look at photos of ourselves. That's a way to get distance from ourselves. Um, We could imagine what a friend might say about us. That's another way. Uh, You know, and researchers will refer to this in all sorts of ways, like temporal distancing is a very technical term that Mm -hmm. refers to thinking of ourselves in the past and thinking of ourselves in the future. Um, And and basically, you know, there are a lot of benefits, is what the research has found, um, to self-distancing, particularly in, in times of difficulty so it if if you really think about it, it's pretty intuitive. If I'm suffering in the present, but I'm able to recall a positive memory about myself or imagine a future in which this difficult thing is no longer happening, it actually provides me with resilience or motivation or all sorts of other resources um, in the present that enable me to think through my situation perhaps with more you know strategic thinking right. or. Whatever, critical thinking, um, and so so self-distancing can actually provide a lot of psychological resources. Even though we tend, I, I'm I'm kind of interested in the tension between self-distancing and this sort of omnipresent advice to be present. Exactly. Right. Um, so so that's something that came up for me is you know when is when and when should we be present and when should we not be present.
0: Hmm. We live in the era of mindfulness, don't we? I mean, this, this yeah. is kind of, this is, this is everywhere. And we're taught that the power of now and and the present moment is all that we have. And yet here we are saying that sometimes we need to remove ourselves from it. It's kind of paradoxical. I, I, what else, what else could you add to that? Or what did you find in your research?
2: I think one thing is to, you know, zoom out a bit. And I think what I found What I found comforting is just, you know, the human mind is very complex and we have this very complex ability to time travel and to be sitting in a boring Zoom meeting, but be thinking about that time we, you know, went on vacation Mm. or what it was like to go to the library in college. And maybe that puts a smile on my face. And so I think what the research sort of made me think is just like, wow, that's pretty cool. And I wouldn't want to give that up. So, yes, maybe I should be present in the Zoom meeting. Maybe it would make me learn more or, you know, be more productive or whatever other benefits you want to cite. But, you know, I think just being able to appreciate that human consciousness is so complex and that this ability to be in two places at one time is actually kind of a profound technology, um, that's sort of how I, you know, came out of it. And I think that, you know... Also, just thinking about the psychological benefits of being able to do that, you know, so if I'm let's say at home and I'm very anxious and I'm feeling socially isolated and I'm able to not be present with that but actually look at a photo of myself five years ago and think, "Wow, you know that was a really fun experience, and that gives me whatever level of positivity I can access at that moment, I think that's a pretty good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's a time and a place to be present. And yeah. if we're not present all the time, because it's too hard, I don't think we should, you know, think that's a bad thing.
0: Yeah. And one thing that is always kind of confounding thinking about being a human and all of this is why we just are so brutal to ourselves in the present moment. Oftentimes why we are so continuously self-critical. And I think that that's why this, this idea of self-distancing is, is interesting and maybe important um, which is that it's hard to have perspective in the moment. Um, and we tend to be much better at giving advice to other people than we are at giving advice to ourselves. Uh, did you get any sense of, of kind of why that self-brutalization seems to be so present in all of us?
2: Yeah, I think that a large part of this has to do with um, another evolutionary adaptation, which is called negativity bias. Mm. Um yeah. So the you know the basic idea, you know, it kind of speaks for itself, but we are wired to give more attention to negative things in sure. the present than positive things and you know there's very good reason for that. If I'm going back to my forest example, if I'm in the forest and I see a beautiful lush bush of berries, but there's also a tiger. I don't yeah. know where this forest yep. is, but you know, I should probably notice the tiger before I notice the berries because yeah. I'm gonna. You know, there's a there's a good reason to get. Sounds away from like a good idea. Tiger. Yeah. You yeah. know, so with the way that that manifests in you know modern life is that I'm gonna notice all of the emails I haven't responded to before. I think to myself, "Wow, that, I did a really good job in that presentation five minutes ago." Mm-hmm. Or I'm gonna think, you know, "Oh, I." you know, I ate too much rather than, oh, isn't it great that I took a run yesterday? That's yeah. just like how we were wired that way. Um, so it, it really takes a concerted effort to challenge that bias in all sorts of ways. And, right. you know, one of the ways we can do it is by thinking of ourselves as we might think about a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's itself a, a self-distancing technique, Yeah, um, also referred to as self-compassion. Um, And there's a lot of research there on self-compassion and the benefits of it.
0: I've been speaking today with Charlotte Lieberman. She's a journalist focusing on mental health research. Her latest piece in the New York Times is titled Why We Romanticize the Past. Charlotte, thanks for the time.
2: Of course, thanks for having me.
0: Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.